You have reached the phone call from Paul, a literary hub podcast. To hear more, visit lithub.com. Paul Holden Graber's conversation with Lewis Hyde. Hello, could I please speak with Lewis Hyde? Speaking. Hello, Paul. Hello, Lewis. I'm so happy to be speaking to you. you, you you've written a book called A Primer for Forgetting, which is filled with every possible obsession I've had in my life. I mean, really, it's like like an organized web of obsessions. And um, when I when I started to read it, of course, I'm familiar with your other books, particularly The Gift, which has been a book that has been with me for so long and that I've read and reread and suggested to so many people, as I know Margaret Atwood does whenever she's asked by a writer, what should they read? She says, read The Gift. But you've given us an incredible gift with this book called A Primer for Forgetting, which is hardly um, a, a recipe that you're giving people telling them, please forget. But rather, it's an extraordinary exploration into what it means to both forget and remember. And if you don't mind, to set this call in motion, I'm going to do something that I've never done on a phone call from Paul, but read the first page and a half, and then have you comment on it. Uh, Because when I opened the book and read that first page and a half, I was utterly and totally hooked. So I hope you won't, I hope you won't mind. No, please go ahead. And th- this is how you begin the book. It, the chapter is the, the introduction is marvelous. It has the, the, the introduction is called What This Is. Many years ago, reading about the old oral cultures where wisdom and history lived not in books, but on the tongue, I found my curiosity aroused by one brief remark. Oral societies, I read, keep themselves in equilibrium by sloughing off memories which no longer have present relevance. My interest at the time was in memory itself, in the valuable ways that persons and cultures keep the past in mind. But here was a contrary note, one that clearly stirred my own contrary spirit, for I began to keep scrapbooks of other cases in which letting go of the past proves to be at least as useful as preserving it. This book, the late fruit of those gleanings, has turned out to be an experiment in both thought and form. The thought experiment seeks to test the proposition that forgetfulness can be more useful than memory, or at the very least that memory functions best in tandem with forgetting. 
To praise forgetting is not, of course, the same thing as speaking against memory. Any experiment worth conducting ought sometimes to yield negative or null results, and mine is no exception. Readers will surely find instances, as I did, where they'll want to draw the line and say, no, here we must remember, though ironically, stirring up resistance to forgetting can itself be one of the uses of forgetting. Wow, Lewis. Um, it, it, it strikes me as such a powerful, a powerful beginning. And in a way, it sets the book in motion. And I'm, I'm, I was particularly struck, I must say, by, given my own, uh, as it were, métier, which is to chat for a living, by the, the, the third line where you say that history lived not in books, but on the tongue. And I, I always love remembering the Tristan Tsara line where he says that thought was made in the mouse. I'm wondering if you, if you can comment on the reading I just made and, and sort of give us a sense of, of what this journey and what this essay and form was for you. Well, maybe what I could do is to expand on one or two of the things that are in those paragraphs. Please. That I mentioned having kept scrapbooks. So I ended up deciding to keep that form for the book rather than turning my notes into a more um, worked out argument. So that means that the form of the book, first of all, it contains four notebooks. So I organized the material around certain themes. The first theme is mythological material. In the old myths, there are a lot of stories about remembering and forgetting. And the second notebook is more personal psychology. There's a famous Buddhist aphorism that um, when you do meditation practice, you study the self to forget the self. And I'm interested in self-forgetfulness and maybe more pointedly sometimes in problems around traumatic memory. How does an individual who's really been hurt get past that wound. And the third section is called Nation, and it's more about a large group's collectives trying to work with the past. And the final uh, notebook is called Creator, and um, or Creation, and it's more pointed toward artistic practice and spiritual life. And just to say finally that, <clears throat> that the form is episodic. Um, there are certain patterns that emerge in the notebooks and certain lines of argument, but um, in the paragraph that follows what you read, I say that having written sort of big argumentative books for many years, I found myself weary of argument, of striving for mastery, of marshalling the evidence, of drilling down to bedrock to anchor every claim, of inventing transitions to mask the native jumpiness of my mind. <laughs> so... I love, I love, I love, um, uh, Lewis, the, the, no, the notion of a native jumpiness of my mind, because I, I so often um, quote the wonderful line of Lawrence Stern, where he says that digression is the sunshine of narrative. <laughs> That's wonderful. Exactly. And um, so I, I, I 
so the, you know, in a way, the episodic form, I think, mimics the form of our own thought, though there is a through line here. So I, I keep asking the reader to come back to my theme, but in a way, it more allows the reader to, um, to free associate and to be provoked uh, to think about your own situation in terms of the material. And, you know, one of the passages that comes shortly after that beginning that I, I, I simply found myself having to read to, to, to express really the, the, the joy I had in that um, incipit, in that beginning, uh, like, like a strong symphony. Just a little bit afterwards, you, you go into what I take to be a really important etymological difference between the German and the Greek way of thinking about both forgetting and memory and remembering. And I'm wondering if you, if you might, if you might speak about why that difference actually is fundamental. Um, well, maybe I should say a tiny bit more about the difference. So I use the old, the roots of these words as a way of imagining them. So, so to get an image in play for thinking about what it is to forget. And so in the, in the um, English word forget goes back to an old German um, prefix, meaning where the for part of that means to neglect or abstain from something. And the, and the, the getan, the forgetten, means to hold on. So forgetting is to stop holding on. Um, it's, it's to open the hand of thoughts, to release something from, from the mind. Whereas the Greek image is, um, uh, the Greek word for forgetfulness is methay, and the roots of that go back to an Indo-European root that means to be hidden away, to hide. So it's as if to forget something is to have it hidden in the mind. And then what's of most interest to me is the opposite of that in the Greek is alethe, or alethia, which gets translated into English as the truth. Right. So it's as if the truth is something that's been released from hiding in the mind and, and um, been brought into light. Um, and later in the book, I make a distinction then between um, things that are hidden properly and improperly. And I, I actually switch it away and say that hiding is a kind of burial. So sometimes to forget something is to bury it. But there, there's, there are hasty burials in which you just don't want to look at the thing that happened. <laughs> and then there's what I think of as proper burial, where there are funeral rites, where you actually think about what's happened and um, pay attention. And so the book as a whole is more interested, is actually only interested in in the latter, in a kind of project of forgetting where you have to do some kind of work. It's not just about amnesia or repression. It's about working through. And 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 the Greek the the, the Greek etymology in a, in a, in a, in a sense is a very hopeful one. Yeah, I suppose it is. Um, Another way of saying it is, um, you know, in the Greek mythology, uh, Mnemosyne is the mother of the muses. And one thing I point out earlier is that um, in the old stories, uh, Hesiod and others, she doesn't just help people to remember. Her, her name gets translated as memory, but she also helps them forget what they need to forget. So she's a double goddess. Um, and that doubleness of both memory and forgetting working together um, Actually, Jorge Luis Borges wonderfully says, uh, memory and oblivion 
You need them both. We call that imagination. I know, it's extraordinary. So it's hopeful in the sense that, that to imagine the world, to imagine yourself, uh, that's the project. <laughs> and you know, um, in reading the, the wonderful quotations you have of Borges, I was reminded of another one that I've always loved, where he says, when writers die, they become books, which is, after all, not too bad an incarnation. Long live the book, and you have you have what one might call extremely small and tight um, one line at time pages where you will just have either a quotation by somebody or in this case a thought of yours, which may may follow uh, the Borges quotation I, I I just I just read to you which is, you, you write somewhere in the middle of the book, you say, preparing for my own dementia. And I, I wonder how, how that fits into this general project of a, a primer for forgetting. So to say a few things about this, of course, the book is not a book in favor of dementia. Of course it's not. It's a horrible uh, loss. And and one of the dark threads in the book is uh, a recurrent image of my own mother who had dementia in her old age and the sadness of that. But um, in a way, I, you know, I feel uh, because of the great advances of modern medicine, we are more and more living long enough to see that one of the things that finally gives out is the mind. And, um, and in a sense, to, to reclaim forgetfulness is something to be valued and to puzzle over and wonder at is to reimagine how we might think about our own, uh, the end of our own lives. Um, that death and dementia are waiting for any of us. And rather than, um, face them with fear and dread, uh, to simply know that they are part of being alive. So I did have to wonder as I wrote this book, it's not about dementia, it's not in favor of dementia, but if somehow the project wasn't also about my own getting old. But it's, yes, and so mortality is, is, is part of, 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 of the project, but also the scrapbook uh, image and the scrapbook reality is a way of warding and protecting oneself from forgetfulness. Uh, writing down, I, I, I know it uh, for myself, um, you know, I often say that I'm, I'm, I, I suffer from a disease which I might call quotomania, an inability uh, nearly to speak without invoking others. Partly, be partly because others express in so many ways what I'm thinking, and also because I like trying out quotations on others to see how they might react. Yeah, yeah. You know, it it it, it, it has a it, ha it has a power, and it has a power against um, against losing. And I'm 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 taken always by this notion that in English the word remembering is so strong because it really, truly, deeply means 
putting back the members together as in as in a as in a whole remembering yes well and it's calling back to mind the thing that um, memory we hope may hold so you're kind of walk, walking anthology of, <laughs> of quotations that stick to the mind and and that that stick to the mind and that find themselves so often on my tongue that's why that um, that beginning is so powerful, you know, because it brought back to 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 mind, you know, the, the the extreme pleasure I had so many so many years ago of of reading of reading Walter Ong, uh, orality and literacy, and 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 thinking about what what is lost when an oral culture disappears. Well, I mean, part of the argument of or part of what arises in my book is the idea that what's lost is the flexibility that comes in an oral culture, that there used to be a thing called living memory. Right. An argument that the law, for example, would be only decided if some living human being could remember what happened. And if nobody could remember uh, the, the details of the case, then it, it would just disappear. So um, uh, there's a wonderful phrase in the law things happening in time immemorial, or time out of mind. I mean, nowadays we have a thing called statutes of limitation, which sort of are there to um, adjust the fact that living memory has been turned into written memory, which keeps things uh, seemingly preserved forever. Um, But if you have a statute of limitations, even living memory has to be trumped by letting things go. You know, the the oral tradition... I mean, I'm partly thinking that the quotations that you love are ones that stick to the mind because they have some um, built-in mnemonic capacity that they're rhythmic or striking or imagistic and deserve to live on in the in living memory, whereas <laughs> much of what goes past our minds uh, happily and rightfully disappears. I've never thought of it quite that way. I'm, I'm as I as I he, as I hear you speak, I'm. I'm reminded of an extraordinary project uh, that Lena Herzog has put together as a as kind of an oratorio in the form of a film called Last Whispers, which is about languages that are at an incredibly, uh, um, uh, I mean, incredibly quickly disappearing, and what yeah. what what happens when? last whispers when we have the last speaker of a language and when we no longer have that last speaker and we no longer have the grammar of that language uh, a whole world disappears with it and 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 your book in in many ways brings such what one might call such gloomy thoughts to to mind but the book is not gloomy um, and the book is painful in many ways, and I'm thinking particularly of of this extraordinary quotation again of Milos, where you say, "Is it possible that there is no other memory than the memory of wounds?" And I I, I know you invoke I I know you invoke uh, the project the extraordinary equal justice project of of Brian Stevenson, who I also had the pleasure of speaking to on on this phone call. It's it's an amazing project, and and how do we how do we memorialize uh, properly? 
because um, so much of what we now think about in terms of memory forgetting has to do with wounding, has to do with true trauma, where people have been hurt psychologically or even physically in a way that turns out to be very difficult to heal. And um, particularly in the section called Nation, right. I'm trying to think about what communities have to do to overcome some kind of collective trauma. And um, to put it in maybe too simply and quickly, but to get the skeleton of this on the in front of us, um, the first step is to figure out what actually happens. So truth matters. And the second step is some kind of justice. If uh, wrongs were done, they need to be called to account. And if you have those two things, you're well on your way to doing something, to moving <laughs> into the future in a different way. So at that point, um, discussions of reparations, discussions of apology and forgiveness, um, all these things come up. And um, so again, there is a project of working through the past. Um, and let me back off and say that um, in a way, I'm also interested in the legal life, which nobody gets wounded. <laughs> I mean, sometimes people think, well, what should we do about poor soldiers who've been traumatized by being sent to Afghanistan? The answer is don't send them in the first place. Yes. If you want to have a, a, a trauma unit in a hospital, those doctors should be out opposing the government, which sends people out to be traumatized. So, um, you know, I end up seeking out, I'm, I'm very fond of a thing in, in Plato where the, the souls of the dead get to choose their next life. And Odysseus, who's been through the ringer, so to speak, Odysseus chooses the life of an ordinary man, a, a life in which nothing will happen. And, um, you know, that's the life most of us should choose. We should not try to be heroes and, uh, and fight the fight in which everybody gets wounded, because that means you create a temporality that will be hard to escape from. Um, so, yes, maybe the most memory is the memory of wounds. You have, um, in, in, in the book, you have some extraordinary passages which seemed quite natural to me, of of um, of Proust, and so many that I would love to read, and so many that I hope those people who will be eavesdropping on our phone call will be um, encouraged to read as they they immediately go and and get your book. There is one passage. Um, in, in a book that Beckett wrote on Proust, where Beckett said something that is both funny and probably very true. He said Proust had a bad memory. <laughs> yeah. And I'm wondering how that resonates with you. Um, I love the pause, by the way. Short book that Beckett wrote on Proust, and one thing that Beckett points out is the degree to which this fabulous novel of Proust is about what we think of as habits of mind, and um, the way to which we're contained in our own habits of mind, and they 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 make us comfortable in the world, but they also then uh, filter the world such that we 
actually are not in contact with it. And um, to give the famous example, at the beginning of that novel, young Marcel, the hero, goes on and on and on about how he was hurt as a child when his mother wouldn't come kiss him goodnight. And it's 30 or 40 pages, and this is the wound of his childhood, which he remembers uh, obsessively. Then there's the moment in which he's having tea with his mother, and he suddenly remembers having tea with his aunt uh, as a child. And the point about that is that the the memory of having tea with his it was something trivial in his childhood. It was something completely forgettable. And so forgetting in Proust is a kind of guardian that keeps lived life preserved as lived so that it can be lived again. And so in a funny way to have a bad memory is a virtue. Right. It means you're not constantly submitting your experiences to your habits of mind, domesticating them and carrying them around like baggage. Um, that there are things waiting for you that can come to life again. And imagine, um, imagine if we if we lived a life where we remembered everything. I, I know, I know, Borges has a story about that. Yes, it would be painful. I mean, there is there is an uh, nearly an art to forgetting, and I'm 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 remembering precisely an extraordinary little book that Proust wrote before La Recherche which was an introduction to Ruskin's essay on reading Sesame and Lilies. And so Proust wrote an essay on reading, on reading. And in it, he one of the, it probably has my favorite first sentence of any book anywhere, uh, where he says, there are perhaps no days of our childhood that we lived so fully than those we thought we lived without living them, those we spent with a favorite book. And he goes on to say a bit later that he doesn't remember really what he was reading, which reminds me of the wonderful Snyder poem you have in your book. He doesn't really remember what he was reading, but he remembers his aunt coming to interrupt his reading at a, at, at, at a moment when he was called to have lunch. And it was where he read it, the smell in the air, uh, the, 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 the mood, the mood of it. And in many ways, maybe many of the most important experiences we have are experiences where we don't quite remember, but we remember something. Um, we remember what one might call nearly the the gemüt, the, the mood of it. Yes, I mean, it's a wonderful image, both reading and being interrupted, because, you know, one thought I have is that um, part of the pleasures of childhood are the unselfconscious life in which you don't remember because you're not, because you're just involved, you're absorbed in the world and it's not laying down tracks in your mind, it's just being. Right. And it's as if what Proust is saying is that reading for him was just being alive. To be interrupted is to be sort of jerked out of your own liveliness and have to perform for other people. So uh, it's, um, it's about the self-forgetfulness of absorption versus the memory of being uh, poked at by your aunt. <laughs> and, 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 you, and you talk about that also um, invoking what, what John Cage spoke nearly about as a, a miraculous moment. Uh, and the miraculous moment might be that moment when we are 
you know, fully absorbed. And, and um, again, f- forgive me, Lewis, but another quotation comes to mind of Simone Weil when she says that attention is a form of prayer. When you are really, you are really absorbed in, in the sense that nothing really can take you out of it except maybe an aunt that tells you it is time, Marcel, to have lunch. So attention is a form of prayer. You know, one of the things that I found as I wrote this book is that there are many different kinds of forgetting. Right. One of them is forgetting the future. Uh, in a sense that we often live with fantasies about the future, about what will happen tomorrow, or more importantly, what I could become if I were a better, bigger human being. And there's a lot of, in both Christianity and Buddhism, the the instruction is to stop doing that, to stop fantasizing about the future and the past, and to pay attention to the present moment. And that that's where things are actually happening. So uh, in that sense, uh, uh, that may be what Simone Weil means by attention as a form of prayer. I, I, I think so. I, think, I mean, I've never read it quite like that way, but I think so. Um, and, and, you know, that brings me to, a, to another theme, as I said to you, um, reading a primer for forgetting was, a, was, was difficult because every two pages I had to get up and say, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, again. And now Lewis Hyde is speaking about yet this other subject, which is a subject of nostalgia, and I was, and, and I was thinking, you know, what is this connection between nostalgia and forgetting? And I was reminded of conversations I used to have so long ago with, with the now very sadly deceased Svetlana Boim about, about nostalgia and about the, the very origin. Do you know the origin of the word nostalgia? and then songs about homecoming, and Alja, which is the pain. So nostalgia is, uh, as, in a way, it's an invented disease. Uh, it's, the, it's the disease of feeling the pain of wanting to go home but not being there. Right, and do you know who invented it? Yes, it's 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 marvelous that you mention it because I it, I love it. I love the fact that Adalbert Hoffer in 1625 or something like that discovered that that yeah, mercenaries exactly. were missing the Alps. <laughs> I mean, it's just magnificent. Yes, exactly. I just I just love it. This was, by the way, not a quiz. In case you were wondering. But I just love the fact that that too finds its way in, in the book. And the, the relationship between nostalgia and forgetting is so interesting. Partly because you were talking about, you know, the future, but also this, this past as if we, we, we say, you know, the, the good old days. I remember my mother always saying they were maybe old, but I'm not sure they were good. Lana Boyum, and, and um, you know, I also put her in the book because she has this wonderful distinction between two kinds of nostalgia. One is reflective, and the other is restorative. And restorative nostalgia is uh, the urge to recreate the past in the present. 
um, to, to try to make the present exactly like the past. Whereas reflective realizes that it's hopeless. And so it's not that you don't think about the past and long for it, but it, it's almost amusing and, um, you know, there's a kind of melancholy to it, but you know that it can. And also you know that there's a virtue, that you can never go back, that there's some things that the time has given you that you would not want to lose. And just to put the point on this, restorative nostalgia is what somebody like Donald Trump tries to get going in this country, that the idea of making America great again has in it buried the idea that there was something you could recreate. And go back and to. restorative nostalgia tends to be cruel because you have to repress and destroy whatever has appeared that you think didn't appear in the past. So uh, I'm very fond of the reflective nostalgia that Boyum sends us toward. Yes, I, I, I think her, her, what one might call a taxonomy of, of nostalgia is so... Uh, so interesting uh, and, and and powerful and in 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 that introduction that I read you you speak about the kind of ruminative essay you are writing, and you speak also about the way in which you write, which is deliberate and slow and that reminded me of um, a, a, a quotation of Kundera that i 've always liked and that I think in a way speaks so powerfully to your book, where he says there is a secret bond between slowness and memory, between speed and forgetting. Uh-huh. Interesting. Do you think she's right? Well, you know, most of these abstractions can be turned around, so it could be... Uh, I'm, I'm sure he's right in many cases. I actually... Um, you know, there's another quotation of, of Milan Kundera's that I had to work with a bit because it seemed to challenge my own project. My project was to try to think of where forgetfulness is useful. And Kundera famously, in the Book of Laughter and Forgetting, he's thinking about the organized forgetting that the Soviet Union used to impose on Eastern Europe. And he says, and I think rightly so, that the struggle of man against power is the struggle of memory against forgetting. So that's true in that case. But I then had to try to think of uh, places when it wasn't true. And what I end up thinking about is the degree to which politicians sometimes put into play the memory of racial or ethnic or national difference and get people fighting each other based on their religion or, or race. And in that sense, in those cases, the struggle against power is the struggle against the memory of difference. Right. So um, uh, many times these formulae can be played with and come out from different directions. Lewis, I was wondering if um, there might be a passage, either of your own book or anything you would like to read. And if there isn't, I'd love to ask you to read a passage, so you choose. <laughs> well, if we had time, we could do both. Okay, we, we do, we do, we do. This is, this is um, the, a phone call from Paul, for, for better or for worse, is not in a rush. <laughs> so I often read, I think toward the end of the book, I have a little a page called To the Reader. Yes. And it, re- it reflects a bit on the form of the book. Why don't I read that for you? And Please I'd do. I'd love to hear what you wanted to have me read. Please do. 
in his essay, I claim no strong connection between forgetfulness and my book's episodic form. But if there is one, it most likely lies in the way that juxtaposition encourages not just free association, but free forgetting. Jumping from one thing to another, the entries decline to declare a train of thought. I realize that putting Nietzsche next to Hitler, for example, may be thought-provoking. That's something I do in the book. May be thought-provoking, and that some readers will bridge the gap with their own transitional abstraction. Myself, I leave it alone. Interpretation too readily declared dims the lights of things. Readers, then, as they cross the divide between any two entries, will enjoy or suffer their own level of state transition amnesia. Some entries will fade immediately, others linger in the mind, and some disappear only to later return unbidden, involuntary memory, having drawn upon its treasure chest of oblivion. The spaces between entries foreground what happens with any book we read. We retain some things as we go along, while others drop away, until finally, out of the keepers and the discards, we extract the unique book of our own engagement. Unless we kill a book by committing it to memory, active imagination, remember Borges, memory and oblivion, we call that imagination, active imagination will make for us the book that is our book. The episodic form acknowledges the collaged afterlife, of anything we read, or of any life, for that matter. For we, too, are discontinuous creatures, scattered in time, the meaning of our existence, something we can only imagine. And I love also the, the quotation at the, very, at the very top of Frank Kermode, where you, you, yeah. you quote him as saying, forgetfulness is a great, great aid to interpretation. That is such an extraordinary passage, and I, I, I shan't ask you anything about it. I'll let, I'll let the listeners listen to it and then read it. The passage that I was going to ask you to read um, is on page 80, if you have the book in front of you. I do. And I just love it. Oh, yes. I just love it. I, lo I, love, I love the three or four or five moments where John Cage appears, I might say, mir miraculously. <laughs> yes, I mean, to, to frame it a little bit, Cage wonderfully made part of his practice, trying to get away from his own memory and, and likes, or dislikes, and um, had many ways to do it. But this on so page 80, said John Cage to the painter Philip Guston, quote, when you start working, Everybody is in your studio. The past, your friends, enemies, the art world, and above all, your own ideas. All are there. But as you continue painting, they start leaving one by one, and you are left completely alone. Then, if you're lucky, even you leave. Well, I'm not going to leave you quite yet, um, Lewis. Um, I, I have a, a couple more thoughts that are sort of 
jumping around in my mind and then a a question I will leave you with that isn't my own. Okay. It, the, 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 the other thought I have is we, we spoke about nostalgia, we spoke about differences between the Greek and the German etymologies, and then there's another subject which is really uppermost on my mind because I suffer from it terribly, that is, I, I keep the night company, or differently put, I suffer from insomnia, which is yeah. the, the relationship between insomnia and forgetting. And I'm, I'm often reminded of at least two moments, one of them where uh, uh, Akbatova says that insomnia is when both sides of the pillow feel hot. And then Sioran, who said the importance of insomnia is so colossal that I'm tempted to define man as an animal who cannot sleep. So I'm, I'm, I'm wondering the relationship between, and maybe a productive relationship between insomnia and forgetting and insomnia and remembering. is a horrible curse. <laughs> it um, really is. Those, those of us who've had it, um, uh, you know, Nabokov uh, used to say that he had eked a meager living from the generous legacy of insomnia. I know. <laughs> and, you know, that's, that's a happy way of putting yeah. one's own misery. Um, and, but I do think of it as, um, you know, in, in the terms of the book, you could imagine it as being a kind of too much memory disease. You know, you mentioned the story that Borges wrote called Funesil Memorioso, which is about a, a man who couldn't forget even the smallest detail of things. But Borges himself said that he thought it was a story about insomnia. And uh, um, so uh, beyond that, I don't know what to say. I... <laughs> I wish you a good night. Well, well, well. Um, uh, thank you. I will. I will. I will. I will. I will try not to make too many mistakes tonight. Yeah. Well. <laughs> I will leave you with this. I very rarely, if at all, tell people who I'm going to be talking to. It's a surprise, except for the person I call. As you know, I just write to them or call them and say, will you take my call? And mostly, graciously, they say, I will take your call. But this time, I, I departed from my usual way and I wrote to Margaret Atwood. And, and I said, Margaret, I'm speaking with Lewis Hyde. Might you have a question for him? And within a moment, which really was not even a day, she sent me this. And I will read it to you and would love you to respond to, not me, but to Margaret Atwood. For Lewis Hyde, have you ever forgiven someone, even though they did not acknowledge the truth of what they did, and issue an apology. You know, to, to speak about this, uh, frankly, I would have to talk about things which um, I don't feel 
free to talk about uh, in this context. But um, let me acknowledge the weight of that question. Um, that uh, in a way, the, the wounds that we get from somebody who has hurt us, who might eventually um, be forgiven or not, they call into question who we are. Uh, and if you really work with it as a kind of spiritual practice, um, they do raise the question of who, who is it who was hurt? And why is that person hurt? And what would it take to cure that hurt? Um, so I would like to think I have done this. <laughs> and, um, but I don't think I can speak about the examples. But I must say that in the book itself, I have a, a story about a man whose brother was murdered by the Ku Klux Klan in Mississippi in 1964. Yes. And this man, um, he follows the I had imagined one must go through finding out the truth of what happened, seeking justice. He managed to get one of the murderers put in jail. Uh, and then one of the murderers asks him for forgiveness. And in his own reflections on whether he would or not forgive the man, he ends up asking himself, who is it really hurting to keep the grudge 50 years after the event? And in a way, it becomes clear the answer is, at some point, it's hurting the person who keeps the grudge. You know, I can't claim myself to necessarily have the, the spiritual chops to do that, but I do believe that uh, Thomas Moore, the man I'm talking about, managed to find his way out of his own woundedness into something else. Um, so I would like to think it can be done. Lewis Hyde, it's, it's been a, an extraordinary pleasure and privilege for me to talk to you. I look forward, hopefully, to speaking to you soon again. And um, I can't encourage our eavesdroppers to read and, uh, and, and take pleasure in A Primer for Forgetting, Getting Past the Past is the subtitle. It really has been wonderful to talk to you, and, and thank you, thank you, and thank you, and happy holidays. Well, thank you, and you are welcome. I enjoyed our time together. It was fun. All the best. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.